Welcome to the EFC Podcast. Dr. Stephen Garber is Professor of Marketplace Theology and Leadership at Regent College, and he is Director of Regent's newest graduate program, the Master of Arts in Leadership, Theology, and Society. He came to Regent most recently from his role as Principal of the Washington Institute for Faith, Vocation, and Culture. Steve Garber has written several books, and the one I love is Visions of Vocation, Common Grace for the Common Good. Steve is a guy who believes that faith impacts every corner of our lives, and especially our vocations. I'm Karen Stiller. I was in Vancouver recently, and I grabbed the opportunity to have a chat. Stephen, in your book, Visions of Vocation, Common Grace for the Common Good, you talk a lot about story and the power of story and the sort of meta-narrative that we're part of. And I wanted to start with that and just ask you about the power of story and why and how it's so powerful in our life of faith. I think we are story-formed creatures uh, as human beings. I think we're also, wherever we are in the world, I think we are a part of story-formed communities. Many ways to get into that, but, you know, Watership Down is, of mm. course, a story of stories, of story-formed communities and the narratives that these different rabbit communities believe about the world and themselves in the world. And going beyond that, I mean, going back deeper, of course, uh, you know, you cannot read the scriptures without seeing that it, it is primarily and most profoundly a story from creation to consummation. A thousand things I probably think about all that. But. Mm-hmm. In terms of Christian writing today yeah. and Christian literature, are there writers that particularly move you? Should I say one more, th- more thing about Absolutely. story? <laughs> you know, I was, I was speaking down in the States this past weekend, and, uh, and the previous weekend, actually, as well. But in both settings, I was reflecting on why some of our best stories are stories of pilgrimage, hmm. the stories we most read and read them again and pass on from generation to generation. Most people don't know this, but uh, a thousand years ago, The Quest for the Holy Grail, written by an unknown author, uh, was written explicitly for a guide to Christian discipleship in the world. And long before Monty Python and Indiana Jones ever imagined telling a story based on the Holy Grail. I mean, this was actually a book out of our deepest history, really. And it's full of Galahad and Percival and Arthur and the Knights and Guinevere. And, but it's a story, really, about the life of faith and hope mm. and love in the world. You know, some centuries later, of course, we have a book simply called the, A Pilgrim's Progress. Right. Um, and we pass it on from generation to generation still. And our imagery, our language is often full of, if we are attentive at all, to the images that Bunyan offered to us, um, full of uh, doubting castles and giant despairs and, and all of that. And, and, you know, in the last you know, few, few centuries, I mean, some of the stories we best love the, the David Copperfields, the Les Miserables, the Anna Karenina, the you know, Government Punishment. I mean, they're all stories of someone going from here to there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just the way we like stories to be, because in some ways, that's the way the universe is, the story of going from here to there. Yeah. More recently, in the last century, you know, our best love stories are The Hobbit and mm. what comes after that with The Hobbits That Follow and, and uh, The Chronicles of Narnia are clearly of stories of people going from this place to this place and I don't want to make more of that than I ought to, but I think I also want to say that you know that's really how we think as human beings. We see life that way. Yeah. And I think when we don't have that kind of narrative formed existence, I think we are we lose our way in the world. Mm-hmm. So. It must uh, really disturb you to read about 
and hear about, um, you know, the digital world taking over reading and young people not reading as much. And how do you respond and interact with that sad thing? For many years, I've been teaching courses to graduate students. And it's evolving, of course, because it needs to, because the years pass and Mm -hmm. they change and all. But if you can imagine, on the one hand, um, there's this long practice of the church called Lectio Divina, Uh, more recently, one of Regent's own professors, Eugene Peterson, wrote a book called Eat This Book Simply, which was his own take on the meaning of Lectio Divina for the church in the modern world. If you have that story, that ancient practice of the church on the one hand, well, of course, we live in an amusing ourselves to death world, yeah. as Postman wrote about it a generation ago. More recently, we have a book called The Shallows by Nicholas Kars, and it's titled, subtitled, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. Mm-hmm. It's not a screed against the internet or against, against yeah. digital media or against the, you know, the world we live in with technology being what it is. He writes about how grateful he is to be able to put into Google search a few words from a, a text he remembers reading five years ago mm-hmm. and having not to go to the big library at the university you know, 50 miles away. Um, and I realize that to be a gift to me, too. But he also says that by the very way we read on a screen, brain physiologists are making the argument that our, our neurons are changing. We are, we are reading in a different way yeah. in the 21st century. And we're reading for, for less complexity, mm-hmm. less nuance. Mm-hmm. We don't have time for that. We have, our brains are trained, being trained to hyperlink our way through our reading. So on the one hand, I mean, I'm interested in, you know, drawn to this ancient practice of the church mm-hmm. to take the scriptures in deeply, meditatively, having them transform who we are slowly. Yeah. On. At the same time, I realize that we live in a 21st century and a you know, a shallows culture, amusing ourselves to death culture. Mm-hmm. As Sherry Turkle put it in her recent book, we are alone together yes. you know, in, in the world. Yeah. So how do you hold together, you know, what we're called to, mm-hmm. to be in but not of the world, mm-hmm. to be somehow be people formed by the truest truths of the universe, yeah. but, in, uh, but in a way which is attentive to the challenges and questions of our own moment in history. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, that's the heart of what I see myself as a teacher trying to do, but it's really clearly what I work at semester by semester, too, in terms of particular texts and, and, and courses. So. Wow. And that idea of being in and of the world and your book, Visions of Vocation, is so much about tending to the world and paying attention to the world. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could talk mm-hmm. to us about that a little bit. I loved in the book that you, you talk about when you know you must react. Mm-hmm. And that really struck me. Yeah. I mean, it's so much the biblical biblical vision, really. Mm-hmm. If you don't, if you know, then you do. Mm. If you don't do, then you don't know. Okay. Or as I've argued, you know, the Hebrew epistemology, it is if you know, then you care. Yeah. Uh, uh, and the Old Testament is if you know, then you love. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we know these stories so very well about mm-hmm. the good Samaritans of, the, of his history. But what the story begins with, an expert in the law, in Luke, the Luke's Gospel, you know, who has memorized everything, every yod and yota of the law. And he's, in a sense, gotten all A's in law his whole life. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't really, he wants to engage Jesus in a way which we would say is sort of the worst of the academy in every generation. Right. Would you go to school, Jesus? You know? <laughs> yes. Uh, what, what have you published? You know? <laughs> and he won't go there. Jesus doesn't go there. He says, but I'll tell you a story. In the story, we know very, very well. It's about a story of two guys, a lot like this expert in the law, mm-hmm. actually, who are able to see but not respond. Able to, in some ways, to sociologically, theologically, historically 
justify their indifference, say, there is no neighbor in front of me here on, mm. on the side of the road, is there? I don't see a neighbor here. Do you see a neighbor here? Yeah. I don't see a neighbor here. And of course, the scandal of the story in some ways is the Samaritan does see a neighbor. Mm -hmm. He has eyes to see. Mm -hmm. They're a neighbor to be responded to. So you see that very you know, deep story for us as Christians in the world is a story that if you know, then you have to respond. And I would always want to argue that knowledge has to be worked out in a responsibility born of love. Mm -hmm. And that really is at the heart of what I see vocation to always be about. Yeah. Well, speak to us about vocation and calling and yeah. career. I'm still trying to figure those out. Mm -hmm. Well, I think in some ways the best word for all of us, actually, is Aslan's last words in the last battle, further up and further in. Hmm. Um, I think that's really where we are in this world, whether it's in marriages or in our work or in our friendships or our citizenship. I mean, it's always we step into it and we figure out a little bit. We think, well, this this might be it. This must be it, actually. Okay. And then we find out, no, no, there's more, actually. <laughs> there's further up and further into it. Hmm. Um, so I would say that, in a way, I would, I think the most accurate reading of the words vocation and calling is that they are simply two words that mean the same thing. Okay. One is from Latin, one is from Greek. Mm. So they're the same words, mm. really. Um, I would distinguish between vocation and occupation okay. and calling and career, mm. perhaps. Um, but when I make a distinction between vocation and occupation, I would say vocation is always the deepest, the longest, the, the truest word about who we are. It's what makes you, you. You know, and not your sister, and not your mother, and not your father, and not your best friend makes you so distinctly you, actually. Yeah. Because it's the deepest thing about you. It's the, in some ways, what that was, that was just true of you when you were five. Mm -hmm. And in a different kind of a way, more matured, you know, deepening sense of yourself at age 15. And then mm -hmm. at age 25, it was even more so, more clarity about that. And, you know, and as the years go by in life, I think our vocations are to deepen over the years of life. I think occupations, they represent the reality that we occupy different relationships and responsibilities along the way of life. So my occupation can change over time, mm -hmm. but my vocation is to deepen over time. And where, it where the trouble comes in some ways is when we, we miss those. We okay. miss, miss, we miss uh, what they mean in relation to each other. We miss, misrepresent what you know, the words are to mean or what the realities are represent. People I talk to are often, they're, they're wanting to know what these next years of my life are supposed to be about. Mm -hmm. And I, I put on thousands of little brown paper napkins in the cafes of the world, <laughs> um, two circles. And I've put one as the vocation circle with a V in it, one as the occupation circle with an O in it, and I've created them to overlap each other. Mm. And so there's a place between where they touch each other. And the way I've described it is that in the, our own best theology, we talk about a, a now, but a not yet. You know, that Christ is going to make everything be new, to recreate the whole universe. Mm -hmm. you know? And yet, even the creation itself groans, because it's not, not there yet. You know? And we're not there yet. So we live stretched between the realities of vocation and occupation, where nobody in the whole world, nobody in the whole world has a complete overlap. Right. right. It just isn't possible in this now, but not yet world. Sometimes because of systemic injustice and, mm -hmm. you know, historical wrong, people have very little relationship between what they do day by day, what they long to do mm -hmm. day by day. Um, we pray for and hope for that most, more of life over time can be where there's more overlap than not between who we think we were made to be 
yeah. what we really want to be about in our lives, what we do day by day. Well, it's so sad, and I, I mean, we've probably all felt this way, but it's so sad when you meet someone who's maybe midlife, who feels um, disappointed by their work mm-hmm. or their, I mean, that, that's, I guess, an occupation question, but as but, I... But it could be both, though. Yeah. It could be in some ways a misrepresentation or misreading of, you know, who I am, or it could have been that somehow, rather than, you know, it could have been social... You know, influences, mm-hmm. parental, family influences. It could be other things that kind of got somebody off track. Yeah. You know, uh, a misreading of who I am and what mm-hmm. I should be about my life. And so is it ever too late to get back to that original well, it's, location? It's always too late to get back to a romanticized idea because we don't have access to that. I don't think any of us do. But somehow I could find the perfect thing for me. Right. You know, I think that's a fiction, actually. Um, I think there's too much grief in the world and too mm-hmm. much sorrow in the world and too much, you know, through a glass darkly in this world. Yeah. But we don't ever have access to, if I could just do that, it would all be perfect. Right. We think that sometimes. And it's then, like adultery, though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. We get marriage. the thing and think, no. Well, if I could just do that, you know, if only I could be with that one, well, then my life would be happy. But, yeah. You know, it just isn't that story. Mm-hmm. I don't, on the, your question, though, it's a deeper question about, you know, is it ever too late? I don't think it's, it's never too late to be faithful. Mm. It's never too late to, to be responsive to God and to the, people, to the world around us. Um, you know, I have good friends who are a few years older than I am who, you know, who talk about, you know, of course they're not going to retire. They're finding new ways to express the persons that they've been for the rest for the whole of life. Yeah. And it may, be, it may be remunerated, it may not be remunerated. Mm-hmm. That isn't the question of vocation so much, because mm-hmm. you know, that isn't really what... We principally ought to tie into the meaning of our of our of our vocations. Why are you getting paid to do this or not? Yeah. Sometimes we do, and sometimes we, we have to. But you know, that's why for me the the word work goes out of what vocation means. It isn't the same thing as vocation. It's an expression of my vocation. Okay. To get back to the knowing, to know is mm-hmm. to respond in love. And you uh, mention in your book that whatever our vocations are, in our own way, we are responsible uh, for love's sake, for the way the world ought to be. What is happening in the life and soul and heart of a Christian when they don't respond with love or when they seem able to shut their eyes to the mm-hmm. suffering of the world? I mean, on some level, it is a it is a sorrowful faithlessness. Mm. I don't know what you pray, but I know that I pray. I would have eyes to see. Yeah, I would see as God sees, and hear as God hears, and feel as God feels. You know, that doesn't mean that it's all magic and that one, two, three, it all happens you know, before the day's done. But I know that it's my prayer regularly that I would be able to see like that, to hear like that, to feel like that. What is the prophetic lament? You know, from Isaiah to Malachi, you say you belong to me. And yet, you don't do the things mm-hmm. that I, I prize, that I love, that I care about. Yeah. But I require of you to do justice, mm-hmm. to love mercy, to walk humbly with the Lord your God. But you don't do it that way. You don't live that way. You say, you know, sacrifice, 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 holy, 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 you know, but you don't actually look this way in the way you live your lives. The only screed from Jesus in the New Testament, in the Gospels, it is, you hypocrites. Of course, the hypocrisy is that you say, these things matter to you, mm-hmm. but you don't live that way. Mm-hmm. So the question for me about vocation is always more one of, how do we find our way by God's grace to coherence in our lives? 
to the coherence between what we believe and how we live. Yeah. Between our worldview and our way of life. So how do we? Yeah. <laughs> it's worthy of a long walk. <laughs> I mean, in one sense, that's what I'm teaching here. Yeah. You know, week after week, and so I've been teaching for my life, really. That's why I'm willing to go off some weekends. I've done this three out of the last four or five weekends, different parts of North America to speak about these things after teaching here during the week. Because I believe in this. Mm-hmm. I, I believe in this with all my heart, really. But I think there are things that we're not just left dumb about this. Mm-hmm. Like, well, I don't know. You know? <laughs> um, um, I think that, you know, I mean, I think the fundamental reality is that we have to be people who live, in Abraham Kuyper's words, a, a life near unto the Lord. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, here he is, the busy prime minister of a modern nation state, who, before we ever imagined a ghostwriter or, you know, even a co-writer, he 100, 110 times wrote meditations on the last verse from Psalm 73, mm. which is a psalm full of, you know, burden and weight and, you know, and awfulness, really. And then he says, and yet, and yet, it is good for someone to live near unto the Lord. Mm. Um, and so Kuiper's collection of writings is called To Be Near Unto God. So I would say that fundamentally, the first of all the things has to be that we be people who, who live lives near unto God. I think that's, you know, we, we cannot begin anyplace else than that beginning, actually. Um, and it, it is with that beginning to have some, you know, grace of God in us to be able to see the world as God sees the world. That has political implications. It has economic implications. Mm-hmm. It has artistic, aesthetic implications. It has, you know, vocational you know, familial implications. The danger, of course, is always you say this matters to you, and yet you don't live this way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, in much of my life, I have actually spent thinking about, writing about, how do we deepen and sustain a vocation over the course of a life? Mm-hmm. My PhD was on that question, and my thinking on that question in a continuing way. I mean, the Visions of Vocation book grew out of another book that I wrote before that, but I was beginning to, you know, take that first book out all over the place, and people were responding to it, and me hearing what they were thinking about it, and and then realizing that everybody who actually had kept at it, kept at faith, into the maturing years of mm-hmm. life, everybody I talked to had suffered. Mm-hmm. They all were disappointed. Yeah. All had some grief to bear in life. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that we talked about that as the first thing to talk about it, but when you begin to talk to somebody for a little while and you begin to yep. hear more, you realize when you scratch the, mm-hmm. the arm of somebody, you think, huh, you know, I'm sorry, but it's, you're like everybody else, aren't you? Yeah. You too have suffered, haven't you? But they hadn't given up. Mm-hmm. And that was what intrigued me, actually. Yeah. They had not stopped. If the parable of the soils is the first of all the stories of Jesus, it's a story of you know the rare, this rare person who, by God's grace, keeps at it. Yeah. You know, the seed goes out to all kinds of places, all kinds of soils, all kinds of hearts. There's this heart, that heart, and this other heart. And then the fourth heart, of course, is the person who, who hears and understands, who hears and actually puts it into practice, mm-hmm. is how the, what the meaning of the, of the story is. Um, so what is it that marks people who, who, who keep at it, mm-hmm. keep on keeping on? And I begin to realize, and that really becomes the question of this book, you know, how can you know the world and all of its hurt and complexity and, and still care about it yeah. and still love it? And that is the t- theme of the book from beginning to end, actually. What I've argued is that vocation is really to be seen as our response to that question. 
Mm-hmm. Which I would see is the the deepest of the questions, the hardest of all the questions. So it's how we love. It's how we keep it's, on yeah. loving, mm-hmm. yeah. even yeah. knowing. It's in, in some ways that you work as a journalist. Yeah. You know, I work as a professor. You know, my father was a scientist, and I have a brother who's a teacher. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a good friend who's a rancher, another friend who's a farmer, and another friend who's a carpenter, and another friend who's a lawyer. And you know, I mean, the vocations are go on and on. But they're all different ways that we, as the body of Christ mm-hmm. in the world, mm-hmm. are meant to take up that same question and in our diverse vocations to offer ourselves in the Book of Anglican Prayer, common prayer language, uh, with, with gladness and singleness of heart, mm-hmm. to again this week to step into history, step into the world. One thing that really comes out to me in your work is also the role of other people and yeah. doing it together in community. And I, as you were speaking a moment ago, I was thinking about all the people I know who have left the church, like yeah. given up on the church. They they may say they still believe, and I'm sure they do, but they no longer, for whatever reason, see the value of attending or belonging. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could speak to that. Uh-huh. I mean, who of us does not get worn down <laughs> by, by the realities of life in the church? Yeah. I mean, I don't know anybody who says... Well, happy, happy, happy all the time. <laughs> you know, on the one hand, there's the commandment of God. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Mm-hmm. And that is basic to me. But it's also, I mean, in my own research about those who keep at it over time, one of the factors I began to identify, listening to people who, who had done that, was that to a person, they were people who had committed themselves over the course of year after year from, you know, going to... UBC to, you know, as an undergraduate, coming to Regent College across the street as a graduate student, then going off to you know, Ottawa to be in politics or something, you know, or they'd move from South Bend, Indiana and Notre Dame to go to Chicago to get a job, or they move from Boston to New York, or they move from, you know, Seattle to Tacoma or something. That wherever we go in life, these people had committed themselves again mm-hmm. to participation in, to membership within another community of, of Christ's people. And I would just say, you know, it isn't just an observation, but actually it is a, it is part of what, it, part of the ingredient, it is a, a critical ingredient to sustained faith and faithfulness in, in a life. That if we don't do that, in some ways we're just cutting ourselves off and maybe we don't realize what we've done until five or ten years later and we think, I'm just not anymore, am I? You know, I just, I don't see it that way anymore, do I? Because yeah. I would say there's something about the communal embodiment of a worldview, mm-hmm. a set of convictions that actually keeps our own hearts alive. My wife and I made a practice for our whole life together, and I would never say it's a commandment of God. But there's a a certain wisdom about it, I would say. And it grows out of the Clapham community of 200-plus years ago in London, the Wilberforce and his friends who worked for the abolition of the slave trade and other things. Um, But they had a practice. They had a a credo, actually. They They put it this way. Choose a neighbor before you choose a house. And again, I would never say this is the 11th commandment of God. I'd yeah. never put it that way. And that is whom you're loving. And that is in some way the primary expression. Yeah. Okay. It isn't maybe the extent of, but yeah. it's the primary expression. Yeah. Because you realize, and as I would put it, it just gets too hard to hold on to your heart mm. in a pluralizing, globalizing, secularizing world. Yeah. And if you find, think you can do it on your own somehow, I'll see them on Sunday again. We live 25 miles away. Right. You know? I mean... I think there has to be something more intimate and something more incarnate about our participation in the com- a community of Christ's people. Not that we have to, you know, share toothbrushes together. That's not <laughs> the point, really. You know, 
but that we have to actually, in some ways, I mean, we've lived this way for our whole life. We, in moving from Washington, D.C. to here, and we left behind a community of people like that, where mm-hmm. we'd chosen to live near each other, to have some kind of common life together. Okay. Not because we were out doing the same things day by day, we weren't, or that our kids were the same best ages and best friends of each other. They weren't all that either. Mm-hmm. But there was a sense in which we believed in the same things. Mm-hmm. We cared about the same things. We worked on the same things. Even day by day, if our work was took us to different places. Yeah. Uh, I think it's too hard, frankly, to keep your heart alive mm-hmm. if you think you can do it all by yourself. Yeah, I'm sure that must be true. You also write, uh, we don't see ourselves as history might. Can you explain that? Well, we always see through a glass darkly. I think I came at a certain point in my life to think that wasn't a matter of maturing. Like At some point, I wouldn't anymore. Okay, <laughs> I yeah. I think I began to see that at our very best, we do. Yeah. It isn't like at our worst, we do. Mm. At our best, we see through a glass darkly. Mm. We don't finally see everything. Um, so I don't think that we, I mean, behind you, you know, is... Um, photo I took of Bono at a U2 concert. You know, and he's a hero to the world in some ways. He's a flawed man himself and mm-hmm. clay-footed man himself. He knows that better than the rest of us do because he's, he, 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 he sees himself that way. He says this about his own vocation, which I have taken to be kind of a marker uh, for my own thinking. He says, I write songs. I'm a musician. When the day is all done, I hope I've been able to tear a little corner off the darkness. Mm. And I have thought, you know, if... It all happens as it might happen, but I don't know if it will or not. But my wife is maybe choosing someday some marker on a, a gravestone for me someday some, in some place. I'd be happy with any tore a little corner off the darkness. You know, I mean, I think in this long, full, world full of longing, you know, the world full of hope that it is, and full, full of grief that it is, and sorrow that it is, I think to be somebody who keeps on keeping on has some thread that you're following that I hope in and through the life I have, in and through the labor that I offer, you know, that I've been able to tear a little corner off the darkness. You know, you, you know, I've been close enough to Bono in different places to know that it, it's a, be a hard life to be somebody who wherever you walked into any setting in the world, people would just scream your name. Mm-hmm. That would be, we might think for five seconds I'd be happy, but <laughs> not very long after that. You realize I wouldn't really want that with my life. Yeah. So in some ways, the celebrity is a curse of his life, even though he's a global celebrity. Mm-hmm. Most of us are not called to be Bono and have that kind of life around us, which is fine, really. But I think that to be able to be seen tr- truly as somebody who gave himself, herself, to the task of tearing a little corner off the darkness in the world of business, in the world of art, in the world of education, in the world of politics, in the world of neighborhoods, in the world of family, you kind of imagine yourself, you know, that, as one of my own teachers put it, John Stott, he said, why would you blame the world for being the world? Yeah. And when you walk into a dark room, why would you say, dark room, curse you, why are you dark? <laughs> you know, how dare you be dark? Yeah. The question he says is, why weren't Christians being light? Yeah. yeah. Why didn't we step in? Why didn't we understand our vocations as calling us to enter into the world, as the salt of the earth and light of the world? How, why would we blame the world for being in the world? Mm. If that isn't true, we all ought to go home, it seems to me. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh-huh. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To listen to more and to subscribe to Faith Today, Canada's Christian magazine, please visit www.theefc.ca forward slash faith today.